Hey, good morning FCF. We're back again on Sunday morning. I'm excited to start a new series today and uh, it's a series with kind of an unusual title. Don't get too tense by it, but it's called Acing the Tests. Now I know that some of us, as soon as we hear the word tests, we start thinking of, you know, tense situations, maybe situations we had in school or some other areas. You know, you're thinking of cramming all night, or if you were like me, thinking of can you get right beside the smart girl so you can look on her paper during the test, whatever, whatever tension it may bring. We're not going to be looking at those kinds of tests, but here's the reality. We are going to be looking at six different reasons why God himself tests us. Now, that may add additional tension. So, let's look at the word that is used for test first. It is a Greek word uh, in the New Testament called parazo or parasmos, to be, to be tested or tried. The word, it can mean to be tested, it can mean to be, go through a trial, it can mean to be tempted. The context of the passage has to determine. If it's Satan tempting us to sin, parasmos or parazo, it's obviously it's a temptation. If it's God that's trying us, try us, test us, that is different. Now, we're going to look at six common reasons that God tries us, puts us through trials, testings, and there are ones that each and every one of us are highly likely to experience. So, let's get right into it today. We want to look at the first of these tests or these trials, and we're going to call it the trust test or the trust trial. And we're going to start by looking at a book in the New Testament. It's the book of 1 Peter, obviously written by the Apostle Peter. It's written about 64 to 65 AD. The reason that's important to know is because that's when Nero, the Roman emperor, was starting to round up Christians, arrest them just because they were Christians, take them to the arena, turn them into torches for, for flames to keep light in the evening, taking them, feeding them to the lions, having them involved in a lot of games that would cause them death. So Christians were being fiercely, suddenly persecuted just because of having, those, having their trust in Jesus. So let's begin by reading 1 Peter. And we're going to start in chapter 1, and I'm going to start you in verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith or through trust, that word there, the Greek word is pistis, it means faith, trust, confidence, reliance. I use trust more today because people understand its relational context and that's the way it should be understood. Who through faith or trust are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have excuse me, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's our word, all kinds of testings, all kinds of trials, grief in all different kinds of trials and testings. These have come so that your faith, your trust of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Get that again, so that your faith may be proved genuine, your trust may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, honor, 
when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And we'll just kind of stop there. So here we have our introduction to these tests or trials. And these Christ followers who had their uh, eternal hope based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because Jesus rose, they knew that He promised to raise those that belonged to Him. And so nothing in this world could take that away. They had that hope. They were rejoicing in that hope. But in their circumstances, they were experiencing trials. They were experiencing grief because of various types of trials. And I mentioned to you Nero was persecuting the Christians. So we want to start by asking just two questions. The first one is this. Why would trust matters so much to God. It says that the, the trying of your faith or the trying of your trust, it's, it's worth more than gold. Why would our trust, why would our faith matter this much to God? And I want to start by sharing a verse with you. And it's from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And it says, Without trusting or without faith, without trusting or without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to God. So let's pause there and, and just ponder that for a minute. Why would it be that it's impossible to please God unless we have trust in Him? Why would that be? And, and, and what, how does that sound to you? Does that sound then like something that you, I, we must ratchet up trust? We must force ourselves, stir ourselves up to trust in Him in order to please Him. We, we have to merit pleasing Him by stirring ourselves up to trust Him. Is that the way you read that? Because that's not the way it's meant at all. When it says that, that the only way that we can please God is through our faith or through our trust, it's talking about this thing from God's perspective. You have to understand, here is God, this being that made us in His own image, that made us with the capacities to experience life to the richest, highest level the way He Himself does. But because He is infinite and we are finite, we are always in a dependent relationship with Him. We are always needing His leadership. We are always needing His guidance. We always need to be taught. And so it's impossible to please God because unless we trust Him, He can, as it were, open the floodgates to guide us, direct us, protect us, lead us to develop our highest capacities. And so this is what it's really talking about. It's not some singular condition that we're, we have to earn or work ourselves up to. Rather, it's just talking about our trust pleases God because now He has us where He can bless us to the maximum level. It's kind of like this. We're all familiar with uh, Olympic gymnasts. And an Olympic gymnast, uh, you know, they don't just hit the ground at age 12 or 14 or 16 or 18 or 20 being able to do all the amazing things they do on the parallel bars or, you know, whether it's the vault or whether it's the floor exercises. They don't just hit the floor and do that. You know and I know these are individuals that have been in training for usually 8 to 12 years. 8 to 12 years of training six to seven days a week, usually seven hours a day. It, it's extraordinary to think about. They literally, as very young children, move away from their parents. They move in with their coach. And their coach 
directs everything in their life. Their coach tells them what to eat. Their coach tells them when to go to sleep, when to get up. Their coach tells them how to exercise, what to do. Their coach puts them through rigorous training, causes them to endure train, causes them to, to work past fatigue, all kinds of things. But because they trust this coach, you got to follow with me, because they trust this coach entirely, they develop the ability to do things they would never have been able to do unless they trusted and submitted to the coach's training. God wants for you and I to develop, to become who He always meant us to become, to do what He always meant us to do. We were created to be Christ-like beings, but we can't do that unless we have an authentic trust with God. Then He can take us through training. He can teach us. He's infinite. We're finite. We need, we need to learn a lot. We need to cultivate habits that we don't have. As God takes us through His training, listen to this encouraging part carefully. Things that you and I could not do, impossible for us to do, things that we would never do, we will be able to do and not only do them, we will ultimately be able to do them on a wonderful level, a Christ-like level. Why is trust so important to God? There's another reason. You, you can't have an authentic relationship without trust. God created us for an intimate, eternal, authentic relationship with Himself. And how do you have a relationship with an infinite being? It's, it's a little hard for us as finite creatures. It's a little scary to relate to an almighty being. We know that we're vulnerable. We know that He's invulnerable. And so relating to Him is uncomfortable unless, unless we know unless we have confidence that He is, in fact, the safest person in the universe. That means we come to the place where we can trust Him and we relax in His presence. We know that He's for us. He's not against us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He doesn't get disgusted with us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't say, hey, you, you need to run faster or jump higher. He lovingly has, as it were, all the time in the world to work in us and ultimately to work through us. But, but trust is the basis of a real relationship. Listen, listen, God doesn't want to just give us things. There's an awful lot of people that call their trust in Christ um, a relationship, but it's a relationship in which God gives them things. They, they kind of call it salvation, but it doesn't go much further than that. We were created to be beings that live in a constant trusting relationship with our Creator. And apart from that, we, we can't grow, we can't develop, we can't function. It's unsatisfying to us, it's unsatisfying to God. And so God, authentically, He wants us to be able to relax and know that He's safer than your mother, He's safer than your father, He's safer than your brother, your sister, your closest friend. There's no one safer, there's no one better to trust than Him. And until we have that kind of trust in Him, we can't experience all of the goodness that He wants to bring in our life. He, he can't save us as a word. Now we have a lot, of, a lot of understanding that the Scripture says that, that trusting in God or having faith in God is the condition of something we call salvation. In fact, let me share a verse with you. From the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8, this is the Good News translation. It says, For it's by God's grace that you have been saved, we love that term, saved, through faith or through trust, Greek word pistis. It is not the result of your own efforts, but God's gift so that no one could boast. The complete Jewish Bible translates it this way. It says, for you have been delivered by grace through trusting 
And even this is not your accomplishment, but it's God's gift. So we're saved by grace through faith or through trusting because it's the same word there. So why would, why would trusting in Christ, our Creator, why would having faith in Christ, our Creator, be the, the terms for what we call salvation? And when you talk to Christians a lot of times, we think of salvation as kind of like this package deal. You know, it's kind of like God says, okay, I'm going to give you forgiveness of your sins, and I'm going to give you eternal life in my kingdom, and on your part, you have to put your faith in me. And so we, we look at this sometimes as kind of like this formula, and, and not, it is not unusual for us to stop at that point, and, and that's not what that passage is teaching. It's not teaching that to get this package, to get this package of forgiveness and eternal life, you have to trust in the package or trust in the offer. Sometimes you hear Christians say things like, you have to believe, you have to trust that Jesus died to pay for your sins and rose again from the grave. And if you trust in that, you trust in salvation, then God gives you that package. But we're not called to trust in salvation. We're not even called to trust in the fact that God's you know, offered us salvation. We're called to trust in Him. Listen, folks, there is only one possible condition of salvation. And we, we need to re-examine that word salvation. What do we even mean by it? Normally, Christians today just mean it means forgiveness of sins and it means the elevator goes up when life ends, you go to heaven and you don't go down to the place of destruction. But that's not what the Scripture means. The, the image of salvation, it's a rescue. It is a divine intervention. It is God desiring to rescue us from things that we are right now, present tense, endangered by. And any of us that have lived long enough, we, we know we are endangered by lots of things. We, we have bad ideas. We have bad attitudes. We develop bad habits. We make numerous mistakes in life. We are a hazard to ourselves, not to mention to others. We need a lot of rescue. And so God wants to rescue us. Salvation, you have to think in terms, it is when I trust in Christ my Creator, present tense, in real time, I'm trusting Him. I'm looking to His guidance. I'm looking to His Word. I'm looking to His will. When He says stop something, I'm stopping it. When He says learn something, I'm learning it. He wants to save us in real time from the things that endanger us. And there's multitudes of things. We're in danger from the deception of the devil. We're in uh, danger of deception from the world system and all of its false values. We're in danger from all kinds of uh, false philosophies and ideologies that go around. We're in danger from habits, like I said. So, so let me give you an image for salvation as opposed to this static image that, okay, now I've received this package deal that takes me to heaven. A better image is this. We've all seen those situations where suddenly there's a flash flood. And inevitably, somebody gets trapped in their car. Hope it never happens to you. Hope it never happens to me. But somebody's trapped in their car, man, and that water is rising and the current is super swift. It's terrifying. And these people scramble their way around and they make it to the roof of their car because the water is rising and they're yelling, help, help. And usually somebody sees or hears. And so now what happens sometimes is people form a human chain. And so here they are, hand to hand, one after another after another. And they form a human chain and they reach all the way up. They, they risk their own lives to try to save you. You're on top of your car. You can't save yourself. You get down in that water, that current's going to sweep you away and no one's ever going to see you again. Your life on this planet is ended. 
So you can't save yourself. It's the grace of these people. You don't, you don't merit their favor. They don't even know you. They, they just want to do you good. God just wants to do us good. We don't earn His favor. We're helpless. We're lost. We, we, if, if we're left to ourselves, we'll self-destruct. We can't even heal ourselves of every disease. We can't bring ourselves back to life after these bodies die. We need to be rescued in multiple ways. So now, that last chain person, that last person in the chain extends their hand to you. What is your part? Now your part is that you have to be willing to trust that when you grab that person's hand, that they're going to hold on. They only have one hand because their other hand is holding on to somebody else. That's a good picture of salvation, rescuing. God wants to rescue me. He wants to rescue you from present tense danger. There's lots and lots of present tense danger. There is the danger of just living our lives foolishly, never knowing who we are, why we're here, what our purpose is, what the meaning of life is. He wants to save us on multiple levels. He wants to rescue us, deliver us. That cannot happen though, folks unless we have authentic trust in Him. He's a person. He's Christ, our Creator. He's the one that proved His love for us by sacrificing Himself on a cross to show everyone He is indeed the safest person in the universe. Yes, He's Almighty, but He's Almighty governed by sacrificial love. That's why I trust. That's why Peter says that our trust is it's more precious than gold. So that gives us a good feel for why trust would matter so much to God. But there's one last principle, and it's this. Trust, or faith, is the divine principle of cosmic rule. I want to take you a little deeper. It, it is the, the way that God rules over the whole universe. It's the way that He's always ruled over the angels. It's the way that He'll rule over humans. It's the way that He'll rule over all of us forever and ever and ever. Listen. God is the creator and the designer of all life. He knows that life can only be lived at the maximum level in one single way. He designed life to be lived on the basis of His own nature, which He knows to be the highest and best. It's the nature of righteousness and love and goodness all the time. There can be no allowance for evil of any kind. And so God's way of ruling over us, He must get us to obey Him. Now. He doesn't want us to obey Him because He's a control freak. He doesn't want us to obey Him just so that He enjoys people, you know, cowing down to Him. No, He knows life only works in one way. He wants to invite us into the life that He Himself experiences, but we can't experience it unless we trust Him enough to obey Him and learn His ways. Then we can experience life in its richest form. So when it comes to this issue, the universe someday is going to be beautiful and wonderful for everyone, safe for everyone forever. No more sickness, sorrow, pain, death, no more hatred, no more war, no more crime. But the reason it's going to be that way is because every angel and every human will obey God always, all the time, by free choice. We, we will obey Him all the time because we want to. So let's ask a simple question. If it's necessary for humans and angels to obey that life can be lived at the highest level, how can God get us to obey? He's a loving God. He's a good God. But how can He get us to obey? Some of you have heard me teach this before, but, but it's, it's important to have deeper philosophical understanding of God's workings. He could use force. He's almighty, after all. He, he could just force us to obey Him. But then we wouldn't be human anymore. We wouldn't be image bearers. We'd be robots. He could use fear. 
He could so threaten us. He could so threaten that if we ever disobey Him, the consequences would be so severe that we would comply with them, but always deep inside, we would resent that. We, we would hate that. We, we dread living in fear of anyone. So that would be unsatisfactory for us. But more importantly, it would be unsatisfactory for God. God doesn't want beings made in His image that only obey Him because they are afraid of Him or because they're forced by Him. So there's only one last condition, and that is faith slash trust. It is that God will reveal Himself as trustworthy, as worthy of our utmost trust, our utmost faith and confidence and reliance. And then He invites those who want to, to trust Him and have Him as their loving leader, their loving Lord throughout all eternity. That is satisfying to us and satisfying to Him. I follow Jesus, not because I'm afraid of Him. I, I don't follow Jesus because I'm just trying to get myself into heaven or avoid some kind of penalty. I follow Jesus because He has completely and utterly won my trust. When He sacrificed Himself on the cross for me, for others, for our sins, that proved to me that the Almighty Creator is the best person in the universe. He's the most lovely. He's the most kind. He's the most sacrificial. He is the most trustworthy. He conquered my heart. He won my trust. Nothing can shake it. There's nothing that can ever happen to me in life. I don't care how bad it is. It's not, not to say that I won't cry, complain, and pray. Nothing, nothing can shake my trust in God because He has proven Himself trustworthy to me through the way He revealed Himself in the life of Jesus and particularly in His sacrificial death and then His rise from the grave. If He rose, I know He too will raise me from the grave. So, faith, trust, is God's cosmic method of ruling. He will rule over all of us forever and ever, those that have been reconciled to Him in trust, because we trust Him. We, we want to do His will because we trust in Him. So this brings us to the second part of that portion of Scripture in 1 Peter because it goes to say this. I'm going to read it to you again. <clears throat> Verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, your trust of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through, though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. And that's talking about the second coming. So, let's ask a second question. Why would trust be tested by God? I mean, we understand now why trust is so important to God, but, but why would He test it? I mean, doesn't God see the heart, hearts of every human? Doesn't He know whether our trust, our faith is genuine or not? Why would He do this? What would be the reason to to allow us to go into trials to see whether or not our faith is genuine. Well, the first and most obvious thing is that there are some that would say they have trust in Christ or that they are followers of Christ that are not genuine. I mean, all you got to do is look in the disciples, the original disciples. There were 12 disciples, but one of them, one of them's name was Judas. Judas looked on the outside very much like a true disciple, but he never was, never. Three and a half years with Jesus, but he never really was. And it only took the right set of circumstances, it only took the right trial, the right testing to bring out in the open 
what was always inside of him. He was looking to use Jesus. He thought Jesus would rule the world and he wanted to be right there beside him. He thought it would make him wealthy and powerful. He was seeking to get something from Jesus. He really didn't trust in Jesus. Folks, the reason that God puts us through trials is because there are those that will say that they are Christians, say that they are followers of Christ, who may even believe it themselves, but they only have a formulaic version of Christianity or a formulaic version of a relationship with Christ, meaning this, they believe in a formula. I said it earlier in the message, they, they believe that as long as I believe some facts about Jesus, you know, I believe that He came into this world and you know, He was perfect and He did miracles and He died a sacrificial death to pay for my sins and then He rose from the grave. If I believe those facts about Jesus, well then I get this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, this package called salvation. It's a formula. We are never ever called to trust in a formula. We are never called to be businessmen working a good deal with God. Folks, there are people, they're not genuine followers of Christ. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not trying to be offensive here, but there are people that don't honestly even like Jesus. They don't like His way. They don't like His will. They don't like His word. They don't like His righteous ways. But they kind of call themselves His followers because they think it's the only way they're going to get His blessing in this life. And more importantly, it's the only way they're going to receive and uh, invitation into His kingdom in the world to come. They're working a business deal. They're fastening onto a formula. It's not an authentic relationship. It's not authentic trust. There's nothing spontaneous about it. It's very mechanical. These are people that are always wanting to know, well, well can we do this or how far can we go away from God or can I be lost again as opposed to just trusting Him and always wanting to know more about His Word and more about His will so that I can obey it immediately and put it into practice and not just please Him, but be the human being that He always intended me to do. So, the reason God tests faith is because there are those that claim faith, but don't really have it. It's not genuine. In fact, if you were to look at um, the book of 2 Peter, the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Jude, these are the last books just before you come to Revelation, they are all dedicated to dealing with false Christians, particularly false teachers that masquerade as Christians. And so God knows that the right circumstances, Jesus gave a parable, a parable of the sower, that the seed of the Word of God goes out. And in that parable of the sower, three quarters of the individuals that respond initially to the seed of the message of Christ, three quarters of them walk away from it. It's only one quarter that truly trust in Christ Himself, not some formula, not try to use God to get things, but truly trust in Him, truly want Him, and then they develop fruitfulness in life at various levels. And so all through Scripture we have the, these kinds of warnings. Let me share one with you from the book of James. James really hits this head on. In James chapter 2, verse 17, we read, this is Good News Translation, so without faith or trust, that's that Greek word, uh, pistis again, so it is without faith, if it is, excuse me, so it is with faith, if it is alone and includes no actions, then it is dead. Get that. If there's faith alone but no actions, then it's dead. How was our ancestor Abraham put right with God? It was through his actions when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You can read about that in Genesis 22. Can't you see his faith and his actions worked together. His faith was made perfect through his actions. So then, as the body without the spirit is dead, also faith without actions is dead. 
In the book of Romans chapter 1-5, the Apostle Paul says that the message of Christ is meant to produce something Paul calls the obedience of faith in all the nations. The obedience of faith, the obedience that springs from faith because I trust Christ. I obey Him. The book of Hebrews chapter 11, I strongly urge you read it sometime on your own. The whole entire 11th chapter, it is dedicated to individuals who were held forth as models of individuals that came to trust in God in this life, but in every case it talks about their actions. Let me give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7, it says, Noah, because of his trust in God, built the ark. Verse 8, it says, Abraham, because of his trust in God, he left behind his life in Ur of the Chaldees as a 75-year-old man, and he journeys to a place where he didn't know where he was going. It goes on to talk about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. It talks about Moses, how he left the riches of Egypt because of his trust in God. And then it gives this massive list of people after that. Always, though, it's showing that their trust demonstrated itself by their actions, by their obedience to God in particular. And so... When actions don't accompany what we call trust, it shows the spurious, inferior, and, and frankly, completely false nature of whatever it is we call trust. Now, it's a good thing to find out sometimes that what we were calling a trust in Jesus is in fact not, so that we might recover and awaken and perchance put real trust in Jesus. And I'm sure that's a par part of why God wants us to understand the dangers of um, a, a false faith as opposed to a genuine faith. Now I'm going to give you an example of, of what a genuine faith would look like, act like. I, I just read an article in the Christian Post that uh, there's um, a number of, there's 23 different vaccines that they're, they're, they're showing really good results from. They're hoping to see that even as early as this, this uh, winter time, first of the new year, that AstraZeneca has got one that, that's doing really good. They're, they're giving uh, human trials now. 1,077 people are going to take this, this human trial of this vaccine for COVID. Now, I want you to think about something. Let's just say they come out with the vaccine, and we've already ordered, our country has already ordered 300 million doses of this. That's how confident we are in AstraZeneca's vaccine that hopefully, God willing, will indeed come out by the end of this year. But here's the thing. I talk to people from time to time that have differing views about vaccines. And so, but, but let's just say that an individual said, yes, I believe that this AstraZeneca vaccine will indeed protect me from COVID-19. They could say that. They could say they trust in the vaccine. But what would be the acid proof that they do? Well, you know as well as I do what it would be it would mean that they would take the vaccine. They would actually allow themselves to be injected or take it orally, whatever form it comes in. They would, they would take the vaccine into their body, but more, they'd then go out and function normally. If they really trusted in the vaccine, they would not only take it, they would go out and take risk with their life. They would function normally. Faith, you see, trust in Christ shows itself by action. These Christians that Peter was writing to, they were being fiercely persecuted. Nero was starting to persecute them. If you read the book of 1 Peter, you will find again and again these warnings come, or, or these, these portions come up where it talks about the sufferings they were undergoing just because they were Christians, the persecutions they were going on in their own families in some cases. And so here we have the acid proof 
when we're under trial, when there's a risk, but we're still saying, you know, all things considered, nothing's going to stop me from being obedient to Christ. Nothing's going to stop me from serving Christ till the last dying breath. Why, you ask? Because I trust Him. I, I would trust Him as they were cutting my head off or shooting me down or whatever it may be. I would trust Him with the last breath of my life. And I know I'm just saying the way many of you feel because your trust is genuine. But when we go through these trials, these fiery trials, where all of a sudden it's uncomfortable, it may be costly, it could be that this COVID era has cost you severely, relationally or mentally or emotionally or, or economically, but nevertheless you're, you're staying faithful to Christ, you're staying true to Him because your trust, your faith in Him is genuine. And when your faith is genuine, no trial, no trial can shake it. The only thing the trial will do, listen to me carefully, the only thing the trial will do is manifest your trust in God and magnify your trust in God. Others will see it. They will see here is a human being who truly, as it says in verse 8 in this first Peter chapter 1, truly loves Jesus Christ even though they haven't seen Him with their own eyes. They, they've, they've heard the message of the Spirit and the Word of God and they love Jesus as He is. They not just have a trust in Him, but they love Him. And they cannot be shaken by anything from being faithful to Him, serving Him, being part of His church, serving His church, giving themselves to Him, giving themselves to His church. You cannot shake them by trial or by anything else because their faith is genuine and that blesses the heart of God. Now there's there's, there's somewhere I want to take you now. I've been holding this one back. I want to take you really deep. I want to take you into a realm that perhaps you've never heard before. Maybe you never will hear again. I want to give you the ultimate reason why God sees fit to t test, to have our trust tested. It is the divine method of cosmic conflict. The scripture teaches there's a war going on in the universe. You probably are familiar that Satan, a very powerful angel, rebelled. He took one-third of the angels with him. He, he slandered God. He persuaded them to come along with him, just like he slandered God to Adam and Eve and broke their trust in God. So there's this cosmic conflict. Now, you might wonder to yourself, well, God is almighty. Why didn't he just grab Satan by the scruff of his neck and destroy him? Why didn't he just wipe out the other th one-third of the angels that rebelled against him? He's got all power. But would that have really solved the problem? Because you see, Satan was an accuser, a slanderer. He insinuated that God ruled because he had some kind of ego needs to be in control. That he ruled because he just had brute force and, and no one could ever defy his will. That, that he wasn't, wasn't really sacrificially devoted to those that he created, but he ruled out of power-mongering force and ego needs. So if God would have just immediately destroyed Satan, destroyed the rebellious angels, what might have the other two-thirds of the angels thought? Might not it have deepened their suspicion that Satan was telling the truth? So God decides, listen carefully, God decides He's going to allow evil for a little while so that He can abolish it forever. You see, to abolish evil forever, it means that God will so win the trust of men and angels that we will never break trust with Him again. Nothing could cause us to distrust Him again. Nothing could ever cause us to be tempted to disobey Him again. He has to so win our trust. So God decides He's going to let evil express itself freely for a time. He lets Satan and the rebellious angels go. 
He creates humanity and right away Satan shows his evil dark side by deceiving Adam and Eve, slandering God, telling Adam and Eve that, oh, God's just holding back from you. He doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he doesn't want you to be like God himself or you like God yourself. And so right away he tries to destroy humanity. God's letting it happen. He's letting evil express itself so that humans and angels, you've got to get this, humans and angels can see for ourselves that God is absolutely good, utterly wonderful, totally trustworthy, and that evil in any, any insinuation that God is not trustworthy is, is evil at its core itself. Listen, this is God's divine method of cosmic conflict. I'm going to read you quickly a portion of Scripture from the Old Testament that really kind of sets this out in the open. It's from the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 8, 8 through 11. The Lord is speaking to Satan at this big gathering, this big assembly of angels in heaven. The, the leadership of heaven is gathered. Do you notice my servant Job? The Lord asked. Now he's talking to Satan. Satan is in heaven gathering with the other angels. The Lord says, There's no one on earth as faithful and as good as he. He worships me and is careful not to do anything evil. Satan replied, verse 9, Would Job worship you if he got nothing out of it? You have always protected him and his family and everything he owns. You bless everything he does, and you have given him enough cattle to fill the whole country. But now, suppose you take away everything he has. He will curse you to your face. And if you read the rest of that chapter, Job chapter 1, you'll know what happens. Satan kills ten of Job's children. He destroys all of his cattle and business. He wrecks the man's life overnight and he's still not satisfied with that. You read chapter 2, he goes back and he goes after Job's health. Read the rest of the book of Job. Job is a confused man. He didn't have a Bible like we did. There was no Bible. The book of Job goes back to Abraham's time around 1900 years before Jesus. Job didn't know the fullness of God that we have in Jesus that he sacrificially devoted to us because he died on the cross to prove it. Job had a, just a small knowledge of God, but this incredible man, when everything had been taken from him, the only thing he asks for through the entire book of Job is, God, please, just talk to me. Just help me understand. He never, ever turns against God. And God ultimately restores him. This is the cosmic conflict. God, listen to me carefully. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you have thought this or you've prayed one of these prayers. God, I want so much for my life to matter for you. I want so much for my life to make impact for you and your kingdom. God, I want so much that my life will cause others to honor you and like you and be drawn to you and see your goodness and see your worthiness. Please let my life be useful. Maybe you have thought that way. Maybe you have prayed that way. Here it is. Here it is. It is when you and I are going through trials and it's costing us dearly to stay faithful to God and His Word. And we're taking some heavy losses and experiencing some real pain. But no matter what evil throws at us, no matter what Satan throws at us, no matter what life throws at us, we stay loyal to Jesus. We would not think of being anything other than faithful to Him, obedient to His Word. We stay faithful during those times, as did Job 
and that brings great honor, great honor to the Lord. It shows that indeed there are those, because Satan's argument was a simple one. It's this, God, nobody likes you for yourself. Nobody would ever want to be in a relationship with you for yourself. No one's attracted to you. They're either afraid of you because of your power, or they're drawn to you because you can buy them with all the gifts you give them. But no one wants you and your will and your leadership and your righteousness for themselves and Job proves that's a lie and you prove that's a lie and I prove that's a lie every time we go through the fires of trials and we're tempted and we start thinking of those options there's always sinful options but we say no way no how I love my Lord Jesus I will be faithful to him in any and every circumstance true to his word and I will go down if necessary in that way that's how God is fighting this battle. When you read in the book of Revelation, let me just share a passage with you as I get ready to close out. In Revelation chapter 4, we have this mysterious company of people. Let me read it to you. Revelation 4.4. 4. It says, 24 thrones surrounded him. God's on a throne, but then there's 24 other thrones. 24 thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them. That word elders, it is a Greek word presbyteros. It means an overseer. It means a leader. This is God sitting surrounded by 24 other leaders, overseers. Overseers of what? Overseers of universal affairs. Listen to me carefully. I'm going to get you somewhere. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Then I looked again and I heard the voice of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. So they're all speaking out loud now in a loud voice. They were saying, the angels are saying, the elders are saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's Jesus to receive power. He's worthy. He's worry, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power forever. This scene in heaven is this. God is saying, okay, I'm not going to crush evil with my brute force. You other leaders in heaven, you be the judge. I will let evil manifest itself. I'll let evil exist for a little while to my own heartbreak so that I can abolish it forever. You will see that I'm the only way. I am the truth, that I'm the lover of this universe. I'm the sacrificial lover. You will see it, and you will make the decision that evil should be abolished forever. God delegates. It's not that He isn't in control, but in His sovereignty, He's beautiful, beautiful in the way that He shares. Listen, God is fighting this cosmic battle through you, through me, through people like Job. When we stay faithful, when we say, He's won my heart, Satan, you can do what you want. Life, you can do what you want. <laughs> nothing, nothing can, nothing will ever turn me away from Him. That brings this cosmic battle to a whole new level. You can read about this cosmic judge, uh, this court in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. It talks about the court is finally going to be assembled, this cosmic court, and the verdict is going to be given in behalf of God that He's worthy. He's the worthy one to rule and to reign forever and ever. He has all the power, but He doesn't use the power except in the form of love. And so when you and I stay faithful, maybe you have felt like, you know, I, I never felt like, you know, my life made much of a blow for the kingdom of God or for Christ. When you stay faithful in trial, in hardships, in sorrows, 
and you stay true to His Word, you are striking a massive blow against Satan and against the powers of evil. And that's why the testing, the trying of your trust, your faith, is so important to God. So, as we close this out, let's ask ourselves the question. In this trust test, how does your trust, your faith look? Does it pass the test of being genuine? Does it pass the test of being strong and vibrant and healthy? Does it pass the test when things go really bad, when things go really wrong? Does it pass the test when you're not getting what you deserve, when you are not getting justice? Does it pass the test when things are really good and going your way? Or does your heart, does your mind tend to wander away from God and act as though He's not there? There's all kinds of ways that God tests this trust of ours. It is precious in His sight. More important, it is the most valuable thing we possess when we trust our Creator Christ. We are united to Him and His ways, His will, His divine nature can start to be formed within us and we can experience life the way God Himself does right in this life and right on into eternity. How are you doing with the trust test? If today was your day to be Job, how would you, how would I, how would we come through? May God grant us grace to pass this trust test. May our faith be genuine. May it give praise and honor and glory when Jesus returns. Let me pray with you, FCF. Our Father and our God, what, what, an, what an amazing thought that you so love us that our trust in you is so precious to you. How desperately we need you. How desperately we need your courage and your strength and, and your direction and your protection. We do get battered. We do get confused. We do get discouraged. We do get scared. May we see that you are so trustworthy that we will trust in you, cling to you, be faithful to you, and our faith will shine like gold, as genuine as gold, before the eyes of everyone else in heaven and on earth that sees it. To your honor, Lord Jesus, and to the blessing of many others, I ask it all in Christ's holy name. Amen. FCF, thank you very much.